Hello and welcome to the Comic Literate Podcast, or should I say welcome back? Read the first intro by accident. Never mind. The podcast that does deep dives into the best of comic books, graphic novels, mangas, penny dreadfuls, web comics, newspaper comics, and essentially any single frame illustrations where the characters use bubbles to talk or think. Oh, I'm getting good at that. Uh, <laughs> I'm your host, Ryan, or soon to be known as Comic Stan, uh, soon to happen, uh, the resident comic book expert, uh, by which I mean I know who Grant Morrison is. And with me, as always, is my congenial co-host and resident literature expert, by which I mean he owns a book. Uh, it's Jamie. Hello, Jamie. Hi, how are you? Good. Do you like the, the intro changes? Congenial is a beautiful term for one as grumpy as I. I thought I'd surprise you with it. And to be fair, <laughs> most of the time you are congenial, according to the dictionary definition that I checked earlier. <laughs> I suppose that is, yeah, that is an aspect of my character. I'm an affable fellow. Do you know how I found it? How I found the word? How? I searched extrovert into a thesaurus. <laughs> and a few words came up and I thought, you know what? I'm going to introduce a new one each week uh, just, to, just, for, just for our own entertainment. You Did know? you come up against loquacious yet? No, that I can't remember if that wasn't. There was a short list, and I don't remember if that was actually in there or not. But loquacious uh, is a nice one. It just means that you say a lot of words. Oh, so it's, it's not quite extroverted. Yeah, you, you could be a quiet, loquacious person. Yeah, you just like have to listen in for like. <laughs> Ooh, that's uh, the other words. Um, so yes, welcome back to another episode. Uh, we are in just entering the British cold, cold winter, which I am absolutely hating right now. Uh. Oh, it's miserable. Yeah, it's, you know, it reminded me, I, right now, I hate the cold, and I'm okay with the heat, which is lucky for the global warming issues happening. Yeah. But I remembered actually being a teenager, and I was the opposite, and I think I realized why, and this kind of suits this podcast, back then, if it was hot and sunny outside, my parents would be like, why don't you go outside? And I was like, nah, I don't want to. <laughs> and when it was cold, there was no uh, no pressure to go outside. So I was like, I like this weather. I remember when I was a teenager, I lived up north. Oof. And I survived three northern winters without turning my heating on. And now I can't, my bones are cold. Well, that's on twofold. Because on the one hand, it is getting colder. That's like climate change. And the other hand, you're older. And yeah. then older people just can't regulate temperature as well you feel it don't you yeah, it's incredible it, if you've had any like fracture or breaks you feel that bone in the cold oh and do you know my partner and i were talking about all of the bones i've broken and mm. it is an extensive list really yeah i just break myself in stupid ways ryan was that all from cry couple of them my knuckles or that all the knuckles on my right hand were from karate mm. um but then my leg was from dancing i remember that that was uh uh skanking i was specifically i slipped over in my own spill i threw a gin and tonic at somebody and then slipped in my own gin and tonic that i had spilled in was an that, act of instant karma was that an intentional throwing your gin and tonic at somebody? i don't remember i was drunk enough that i walked home on the broken leg mm. broke a, broke my tibia and my fibia Jeez, that's so there's the two in the calf oh it? yeah yeah Ooh. i fucked myself up good and proper jesus absolutely um but yeah no it aches it aches in the cold specifically. Yeah. And yeah. one of the things that is really affecting me this winter is that I've bought a property which was built around the same time that the comic book we're talking about today was set. Wow. And once you tell them which comic book we're talking about, they'll realize just how poorly insulated this building is. <laughs> 
Well, before we get into that one thing. Oh, it was such a lovely segue, though. It's such a great segue. And let's put a pin in that just for... All right, we're doing. We're going to be doing the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I won. Um, the reason being is uh, because recently uh, we had the passing of illustrator Kevin O'Neill. Yes. So this was the kind of, I think, the most, the thing he was most famous for. So we thought, yeah, you know, let's do this. Also, love a bit of Alan Moore. Well, it gives us... We've, We've talked about Alan Moore so much. It's a comic book podcast, and he's one of the most famous, well-regarded comic book writers. And so this really gives us an opportunity to talk about Alan Moore. Talk about his writing in depth and really, really give it to him. Yeah, really get in there. Mm. The problem is, when I first started reading this, I didn't like it. Well, hold that thought because we do have a couple of things. I'm holding a lot of thoughts today, Ryan. (laughs) We have a couple of, I mean, as always, if if you're not saying them, you're holding them. We have a couple things. Uh, first up top, it would not be a comic based podcast, and you'll see the connection if we don't mention the passing of Kevin Conroy. Do you know who that is? No, not a clue. So Kevin Conroy uh, is the definitive voice of Batman. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yes. sorry, I do. So yeah. starting from the animated series in the nineties, which mm. which was around the time that Keaton was the first live action Batman. Yeah, until literally a couple of years ago. So he was the, even though other people did the voice as well, he was the definitive Batman voice across not only decades but across four or five live action Batman. Mm. So the fact that he stayed so relevant and revered during that time. Um, Oh, cat's got these cat scratcher. So. Yeah, sorry. I mean, we're talking about Batman. Catwoman's a character. It's kind of related, isn't it? <laughs> cat shenanigans is just a part of it, unfortunately. Of course. So, but yeah, Kevin Conroy was not only just a great voice actor, but again, just like such a good Batman. He had a very distinct Batman voice to a Bruce Wayne voice. Yeah. The Batman voice was uh, like, it was kind of lower pitch and it was very to the point. Like he didn't, yeah. kinda, he, he was always very direct, not not quick, not fast, but just like he he didn't waste any space or syllables. Yes. Whereas Bruce Wayne's a bit more like, hey, how's it going? Uh, Bruce Wayne. I said, you know, it's, it, you can tell which is the, you know, the, the cover. Yeah. Um, so one thing I've been doing, I've been looking through like some classic Batman animated season and Justice League uh, series stuff. Which also means that you get to listen to a lot of Mark Hamill, which is just... Yep. Mark Hamill as the Joker is the best performance well, he's ever done. Well, they were like... They, to, they, they were the pair, weren't yes, they? Yes, exactly. They loved Anytime, working with each other and... Yeah, any what well, as, soon, as soon as you mentioned Batman, I actually read Mark Hamill's eulogy mm. um, to it's Kevin a good Conroy, one. and it was touching. It was really yeah. touching. Um, lots of love pouring out for him, which is great as well, and... Again, we have to mention here because Batman, whether you like it or not, with superheroes <laughs> and everything, it's Batman is one of, if not the most famous comic book character of all time. In terms of a character starting in comics from how early comics started to now, he's, you know, he's up there. It's strange because Batman's been on my mind a lot recently because I'm buying Christmas presents for my partner who is a Batman collector. Ah, it's a good time. So, yeah, absolutely. So I've been looking at lots of figures of Batman and lots of... Um, models of the Batmobile um, just to add little bits to her collection around Christmas time and so I've seen a lot of effigies of the man himself recently mm. and yeah this is the whole reason uh, one of the things that was uh, interesting I think very noteworthy about Kevin Conroy was for a long time he was gay without being out I think was he? and when he then came out um, I'm, I'm almost certainly came out while working and being famous I don't mm. think he came out before I might be wrong about that but but the important thing to know is he likened 
the secret identity of Bruce Wayne to Batman to literally being a closeted gay man. And that, and I think that really fits not just in like a, oh, he's pretending to be someone else, but in a very kind of like code switching, putting yes. on a different identity when talking to certain people. And that mm. was the the Batman character. So I think he, he did say he empathized with that aspect of the character, which was, I thought was uh, a unique point. Yeah. Doesn't it make sense? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so one, uh, I think that's the main point to bring up. Uh, we do have a couple of sections that we need to get across. The first Ooh. one is, and I don't know, if I've, I might be springing this on you, but we are coming around to the second iteration of Jamie's like comic, but with no pictures and more words corner. Yeah. So I finished, um, I finished uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Right. It was lovely. Um, it was a really great story about brotherhood and betrayal. And South Africa, it was it was a really interesting description of South Africa from the perspective of a white man in the early 20th century. Right. I will leave you with that. Um, I will leave you to draw whatever conclusions from that you'd like. I mean, it's, it's, it's got its connotations, I'll put it that way. <laughs> and I have just picked up a novel by Philip Pullman. Okay. Who you'll recognize as the Northern Lights author. Yes, and he... Did he... Um, no, I'm thinking of Terry Pratchett. Never mind, never mind. I'm thinking of someone else. Right, plenty of Pratchett. They'll, yeah. Pratchett will be mentioned. Um, but it's a novel by Philip Pullman that I literally just picked up in a charity shop. Never heard of it. Wow. And it's a story about, it's called, the, the title has something to do with Jesus and Christ. It's a really long title. Are you not th- are you not thinking of the Bible? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just reading the New Testament. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. It's the Bible, but it was signed by Philip Pullman for like no reason. <laughs> And now they just like sell it like that's ah, a Philip Pullman edition. Back, I'm back, baby. Um, it's called the Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ. I'm only like twenty pages into it, um, but it is essentially Philip Pullman's like, reimagined New Testament. Right. So I, I wasn't that far off. No, you weren't. So- you weren't. There, there, it's very. It's kind of biblical, but kind of not biblical. And it's his interpretation of kind of christ the martyr and jesus the revolutionary i suppose right um and so hopefully by the time we come back around i'll have read it and i can tell you about it well we are on bated breath looking forward to it. by we i mean me and the cat obviously <laughs> nobody else gives a shit well we they they will soon uh, we will keep it going long enough but um my own contribution is my uh ryan's uh, like comics, but the pictures move very fast, forming a moving image corner. Oh, hello. I yeah, like this Working corner. title. Um, but <laughs> the only film I actually saw recently, uh, well, since last time, was uh, Black Panther 2. So that's the only one I can really talk about. But obviously a comic book-based film, but oui. you know, a superhero film. And overall, it was good. Um, it's a rare instance of a film that's almost desperately missing its lead actor from the first well, film. Oh yeah, isn't it? And not it's a rare instance where it's not just a recasting or like other films have had characters die and they're just not in it, which yeah. is technically the case here, but the your whole plot centers around the missing character of Black Panther played by Chadwick Boseman. Though mm. so it's kind of bittersweet at points. It's mm. kind of respectfully pays homage to not only the character but the man who played him in a in a very unique way. Mm. Um it's i i've spoilers for black panther if you've not seen it or not and uh, this is a i i don't this is a minor spoiler i don't think you would care about but but find interesting at the very least they managed to resist the temptation to do a um deep fake 
cameo. Mm. And I thought, I generally, it's rare that I'll think about like a big corporation. I thought, you know what? Good on you. Like you resisted you know, that. I was just listening to um, Cortex. Mm-hmm. I've shown you Cortex, haven't I? Uh, yes, a bit. Yeah. Mike Hurley from the Relay Network and CGP Grey. Yeah. And they were they had they had a whole conversation about their feelings on AI produced art. And one of the things that they really went into depth on was people being using AI to bring back dead actors or to you know to young up Mark Hamill. And all of the implications of it. And so it's really interesting that you mentioned that Disney didn't do that because they fucking live for it. Well, they know they live for it. And uh, like, this was one of those scenarios where this was the biggest role of, yeah. of Bozeman's career. And it's, you know, you can make that exception of like, he lived for this almost. Like he, he didn't get to have a very long career. He had a really tragic end, didn't no. he? No. And he got, but he got to heights that are difficult for someone in that in field of acting becoming a major movie star also being a really prominent part of the mcu as a black man exactly many black characters in the mcu is there he wasn't the first but he was the first central role like the only one that came after him i would say is um anthony mackie playing becoming captain america yeah 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 yeah. and even that he hasn't had a solo film like there's you know the the mcu franchise is made up of mini franchises Mm. and you know chadwick boseman black panther was the first black-centered uh film you had luke cage as the netflix series which yeah, i think is yeah. underrated and you know good but black panther was you know the furthest reaching one i don't know how i feel about it because it kind of has that africa vibe to it well you, do you know what i mean i know what you mean by the the way i kind of look at it is it apparently according to best sources it's made by people who are knowledgeable about the subject and are doing it the way not only that they think is it should be well received but it is by and large received very well by the community it's aimed at and yeah, is, yeah, yeah and is for and emulating and everything yeah so you know you as the as as the white person you just, <laughs> you wait to be like what do they think and then you're yeah, like yeah. all right that's fine then are the black people cool with it cool it's exactly. okay and that's valid like i think that's the way it should be that is what is called listening as a, a, as a white loop. cis male we're like let's let's just wait to see what everyone else's reaction is <laughs> first a little bit and see what I think about it. oh they, they like it cool good yeah i can like it now although i do i will say well i oh, i will say there is a revisionist history when it comes to the blade films because technically he was Ooh. the first oh yeah he wasn't very representative i'll 100 give you that but if you go in by a technical you know he was the first and the first blade film first and second blade films are decent um do you know what though i think it's kind of interesting because his blackness isn't a prominent aspect of his character which is all. the way it should be with black characters they should just happen to be a black person going about doing whatever it is they do, whether or not that be hunting vampires or... Well, there's a line between, I think, happens to be and and celebrating it as well. And I think you yeah, should get both. Yeah, that's valid. Um, one thing I really liked about Luke Cage uh, as a character and as a Netflix series was I felt he was representative much more of the of the modern day realism of, mm. of black life. Whereas that of Bozeman one is the fantastical... Um, creating a fiction to celebrate people and that has its place as well like you want both like mm. you want like i was akin it to like the difference between and we're going to mention this later but the difference between like lord of the rings and game of thrones because that's high and low fantasy mm. so in high fantasy you just make up whatever you want because it you know it's elves and all it's 
cat is strangling that... me with a cord. <laughs> what I have done is taken the bell off of her. There we go. We're good now. I'll probably leave that in just for a laugh. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But so Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings is like, well, there's no racism or sexism or anything because it's, it's all magic. Like we can make what we want. Game of Thrones, called low fantasy, is like, well, what if it was... Oh, message. Message. Game of Thrones is like, what if it was... There was magic, but in our history. So, like, you've still got all the shit of racism, sexism, and violence, and torture, and everything, but there's dragons and magic and stuff as well. So, there, there are two avenues to go. And I yeah. feel like that's, that's the difference, is whether you go, well, what if it's just someone, you know being themselves normally versus well we we can make whatever we want in this because it's you know fantastical so why not let's let's make it whatever we want and mm. i think that's the difference between like realism and non-realism if that makes sense yes even though the non-realism technically still has magic in but that's the or magic powers whatever yeah yeah so um i think we'll go covered those points and i think we're about to get into the main course oh yeah let's just get into it well i've got a great bit to start us off on and i did kind of tease this to you a little bit first but we've okay. got some i've got to bring to the table today some amazing alan moore news right oh you mentioned this yes and what's he been up to was well, not what he's been up to it's <laughs> something that he did previously which i don't think is very well known um Okay. But, so, and what, what I like about this as well is it's a bit of it's a bit of information that if you're not in this in this niche audience or this this you know circle, then it just sounds like absolute bollocks. Like, okay. why would this matter? But you're you'll understand this. So, famously, Alan Moore, how does he feel about every adaptation of his works? He doesn't like it at all. He actually finds it quite. Um unsavory exactly and uh, not even unsavory just bad just bad, <laughs> bad writing he thinks it's all bad and doesn't want anything to do with it yeah so um famously he also goes so far that he not only doesn't want his name on any of the adaptations yeah. and i don't even mean like that he helped make the adaptation but when the adaptation goes like watchman v vendetta when they say based on it's like like this one would be like based on yeah. an illustration by kevin o'neill so it just looks like this kind of empty, like, well, all right, someone illustrated it. Who wrote it? Can't, you don't know. You can't know. That's the, he's withheld that information. <laughs> he's even sued to have that information not available. Really? Yeah. He's like been like, literally, if you put that on there, if you put my name on there, I'll sue. It's like, yeah, but you did write it. It's like, don't take, take my name off it. Like, that's the level that he's, he, he operates on. So Alamore famously hates, you know, any adaptation. Any adaptation of his work, yeah. So... I follow a YouTuber, a uh, guy called Mr. Sunday Movies, mm -hmm. uh, and his podcast, The Weekly Planner Podcast. And yep. they've been doing You've deep dives it. into um, Alan Moore. They're doing an Alan Morathon. So it's <laughs> great. Alan Morathon. Exactly. So they've been doing. It's a Morathon. Yeah. You get more of it. Exactly. Oh, that's so good. Why so did we been... think of that? They've been doing Watchmen, V for Vendetta, yeah. League of uh, Gentlemen, uh, all the films adaptations specifically. Of course. So in one of them, uh, what I found very interesting was. There was uh, there was another lesser known adaptation, and what it is is Alan Moore wrote a story for Superman during one of his runs. Oh, and that story was adapted into an episode, maybe a two part, but at least an episode of a show, Justice League Unlimited. Mm -hmm. So that was literally a Justice League cartoon. Uh, it followed the animated series as well as the uh, Batman animated series and the Superman animated series. So literally those ended and then Justice League started with the same voice actors. So come back to Kevin Conroy and 
a famous Superman um, voice actor, Mark Hamill as well. They all kind of followed on. So it's kind of like a spiritual successor to, to multiple series that came before. And in one of the episodes, they do this story about Superman. It's Superman's birthday. And he basically gets a, um, someone sent him a plant uh, as a gift, but the plant attaches itself to Superman and it makes him hallucinate that he's back on Krypton, that it never blew up, that he basically, he's got everything he wanted, basically. Like Off his tits on acid. Well, yeah. But <laughs> almost like a, a happy coma to keep him docile, essentially. So Animal wrote this original, um, this original story that it was based on. So when the makers of Justice League were um, making the, adapting this episode, they went to Alan Moore and they said, hey, we're making this TV show. Um, we're, we've already made a couple seasons. Uh, we want to do an episode based on your story of Superman. So the makers go to Alan Moore. Uh, we're, we're making the adaptation of your comic. Yeah. Uh, would you like to just look over the script and give us your thoughts and that kind of thing? And he was like, yeah, sure. And looked over. <laughs> so he always is like, yeah, I'll have a look. And then he reads it and goes, no, this is garbage. Well, I think there's a difference between um, Marvel and DC kind of like selling off big film rights and gaining a lot of money, which he just didn't get. So he was yeah. kind of like, if I'm not getting nothing from this big deal, which you you really should give me something, but you're give me nothing, I won't even let you use my name. Whereas yeah. this Just League show, it was a, it was a, Kid show, technically, a uh, very good kid show, but it was, you know, it was a kid show. It wasn't like DC were like, we've got a new cartoon show coming out. It was like, nah, just, yes, we'll give it to someone, make him, we can make some toys or whatever. But yeah, I think the, the fact that the people went to Alamore, they were like, we would like your thoughts. And, mm. and he said, yeah, and helped them out. And they took out a lot of stuff, but I think, it, but apparently, I think Alamore was very sympathetic to the fact that they were making a like 20 minute cartoon out yeah. of like, several issues. So there's a whole arc about uh, Superman's dad becoming like a dictator on Krypton because he <laughs> failed, because he he uh, wrongly predicted the planet exploding and then people like mocked him for it and then he kind of went bad or something. They okay. took all of that out. But, um, but so the main piece of news that this is about, and this was revealed on uh, Mrs. Uh, Sunny Movies, their um, Caravan of Garbage show, the fact that Alan Moore allowed them to use his name. Oh, wow. He so it's the, did. it's the only Alan Moore adaptation <laughs> that in the credits has based on the story by Alan Moore. Oh, well done, Alan. Exactly. Oh, I'm really and proud of him. I heard of this and I thought, oh, this is, this is big oh, news. Oh, I can't wait to tell Jamie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> big revelatory news. Yeah, absolutely. So from there, we move on to the main course, which is, of course, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. A uh, well, I've got the uh, got the uh, blurb. Um, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Volume One, comic book limited series, written by Alan Moore and illustrated by Kevin O'Neill. Rest in peace. Published under the America's Best Comics imprint of DC Comics in the United States and under Vertigo in the United Kingdom in March 1999. Vertigo, you remember being the publisher of Why the Last Man? Yep. So definitely that kind of non-superhero the grittier more adult stories that we're going to be reading a lot of those from the vertigo imprint of dc yeah i've also got the goodreads blurb which i would like to do if you'll allow me in my movie trailer you know coming this summer voice okay go, go. okay london 1898 the victorian era draws to a close and the 20th century approaches it is a time of great change and an age of stagnation. 
a period of chaste order and ignoble chaos. It is an era in need of champions. In this amazingly imaginative tale, literary figures from throughout time and various bodies of work are brought together to face any and all threats to Britain. Alan Quatermain, Mina Murray, <laughs> Captain Nemo. <laughs> Sorry, I can't hold it together. The cat jumped at the wrong time. Bye, it, bye, cat. It's, it's the list of the characters. Oh, okay, I'll fair enough. It just like poor Mina Murray. She oh, went through so the, much. Yeah. yeah. Doctor Hen- uh, Doctor Henry Jekyll and Edward Hyde, and Hawley Griffin, the Invisible Man form a remarkable legion of intellectual aptitude and physical prowess. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Now, my first issues with that blurb, thank you, thank you. My first issue with that blurb is it makes the characters sound a lot better than they actually are. And <laughs> I, say that as someone, I say that as someone who enjoyed the comic, and this is, I'd probably say this is one of my favourites, maybe top 10, top 20 around then. But the characters, are, with the exception of the amazing Mina Murray, they're all absolute shit heels, like every one of them. Shit heels. Yeah, I heard it recently. I'm using. I'm. I'm. I'm including that in my lexicon. It's like a word, <laughs> word a day, but for, <laughs> but for swears. But yeah, the 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 main thing I noticed when starting this comic is all characters absolutely suck except for Mina Murray. Quartermain regains some of his competence. Oh yeah, the competence regaining is is the best part of him. It's it's the most traditional part of his arc as a as an almost main character. Yeah, and and as a recovering opium addict. Well, yeah, and uh, I made a note about that because I found that to be one of the that's a very Alan Moore version of a hero refusing the call. It's like yes. most of the times, like I can't, I've retired, and I've got a family, and I can't do this anymore. And Quartermain's just like, I need more opium. <laughs> leave, leave me, wench. <laughs> I need heroin. <laughs> wow, what a hero. <laughs> Which is kind of often Sherlock Holmes's arc. Well, that was for a while, but in the original books, as I as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, um, he just goes and does heroin, and then someone's like, Sherlock, there's a case. He's like, all right, let me just uh, shake off this heroin, and I'll be... Uh, yeah, the in The Sign of Four, mm. which is the first one, um, there is a point at which... I might not be in The Sign of Four, it's in one of them. I've read all of them. Um, there is a point at which Watson sees Holmes between cases. Right. And it's between cases that he does drugs. Right. And he says, oh, I saw the bottles on the table and I wondered if it was the cocaine or the opium. This mm. And so Holmes has this very Victorian relationship with drugs. There's kind of two big tropes of the drug user in Victorian literature. There is the dandy in an opium den, see Dorian Gray. Right. Or there is the doctor, um, who is administering very careful doses for the desired effects. Right. And that's Holmes. Right. Home, Holmes isn't a chaotic drug user. He's probably one of the first functional addicts in literature. And the and and the the concept of a functional morphine or opium addict is very prevalent mm. in Victorian and early 20th century media. And also just, it was a thing. Doctors would often be morphine addicts. I'm just having a little bit of smack. And I'm yeah, like, yeah, Just yeah. a little bit of smack. Just a little bit of skag. Just a little. And then I'm going to go about my day, treat my <laughs> paintings. I'm going to invent a dildo to cure hysteria in the wandering womb. You know, apparently the first dildo was a... Uh, bees in a box. A, a hollow wooden thing with bees in it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, Which the begs you know. the question, what the fuck happened to the bees? 
I mean, I assume they must have been let go afterwards, but... Would you? Would you want that job? I don't... <laughs> You think it's like a self thing? Isn't it? Like, <laughs> no, I mean the rich people obviously had their own bee changers. So that is, and is so interesting because that's an example that gets banded about a lot. But that's something that one queen did. Mm. Like that was an incredibly wealthy woman who had the bee dildo, and so I imagine she would have had a person whose job it was to empty the bees out at the end of the day. And also imagine being sexually frustrated and trying to catch bees. <laughs> <laughs> just the worst oh i'm so horny i better get my beekeeping outfit but then trying to just to catch them alone like get, get in the box get in there <laughs> sorry I don't know. Me. i'm not doing very well this will be clipped this will be this will be clipped yeah yeah, yeah. okay we're back in the All room right. i had a bit of a giggle and fit yeah. So one thing I liked was at the very first page, and you saw they had the old timey poster, like a kind yes. of freak show poster, like "Come, mm. come, see the attractions" or whatever. I I made note of Moore's description. So it was instead of like the credits, it yes. was like a description for each one, and I just I liked it because I thought he must have wrote it. I don't know if he did, but so his is at tremendous expense. We are proud to present Mr. Alan Moore, the world famous Northamptonshire Nightingale. Famed for his verbal recitations and comical narratives. Wait, is he not from Birmingham? Uh, well, uh, apparently Northamptonshire. He speaks like Birmingham, though. Well, he speaks like a Brummie, but that just might be because he's... Have I been saying he's a Brummie this entire time and he's actually from Northamptonshire? I believe that's cancelable, a canc cancelable action. Yeah, it is. One minute. I'm gonna... God, he does look like a fucking wizard, doesn't he? I mean, I th yeah, but I think that's intentional. I yeah. He's like, stop calling me a wizard. <laughs> He's like, oh, no, please call me a wizard. And um, we're ruining any chance of either of us ever meeting Alan Moore. I mean, he'll, yeah, we might meet him, but he just, he won't like it. <laughs> <laughs> he won't enjoy the experience. And we're still, I'm still going to be like, oh, but I'm a massive fan. Like, it's all in jest. Like, it's, yeah, but talking about him adopting the kind of parlance of victorian england mm. it's clearly something that he had an abiding fascination for early in his career because of from hell yes exactly he he liked to set things in victorian england and i don't know if that's purely a matter of uh, copyright well I, I he must have been reading these books like all these stories that the characters are from like he must have been reading and they're all they're all kind of the type of Victorian novels that a schoolboy in the mid 20th century would have read. Exactly. And he um, must have had an affinity for the setting that they're all in. Because that must be like the thought of like, oh, what if, you know, you put them all together? Like, because yeah. how many copyright free characters are there across like, like, span of set where they were set in? Like, you go get hundreds and hundreds of years. Well, I think this is what's interesting because if he was using characters from pulp novels that he would have grown up reading in the 60s mm. james bond is a prominent one he had to rename him jimmy bond mm. as did um woody allen yes um but these victorian era novels are the same kind of trove of literature that disney were using yeah and the then time. they they copyrighted their versions of them. So they the are so aggressive in maintaining yes. that copyright. But what's interesting, I think, is so they have their own versions copyrighted. Mm. So you can do an original, like proper original to the original text, like Snow White or Cinderella, 
but you can't but the most famous versions the version everyone knows is the disney version and you can't do that because that's theirs i think that's how it works that's absolutely how it works yeah because they couldn't just retroactively like well we own that now like because it was already copyright free functionally though they yeah. did they did that for a long time have you ever oh, heard yeah. have you ever heard the story of the girl with the alice illustration uh, vaguely, vaguely, yeah. So yeah. a young artist posted... For our listeners. Yeah, a young artist posted an illustration of Alice um, based on the original illustrations from the text. Disney took it, printed it on a bunch of purses, and then she saw them for sale and she was like, Oi fam, hmm. what's going on? And they were like, well, it's Alice, it's our character. And she's like, no, that's not your character. That's my illustration of Alice. Mm. Um, and there was a big legal battle and I believe um, the internet crowdfunded her defense Wow! and she was able to get royalties for the purse. That's good. For the sale of the purse. But it was the first time Disney had really in any meaningful, meaningful way acknowledged that they don't actually own the copyright to these characters. But I think this is why Alan Moore was playing with these characters because it was an interesting way for him to use really well-established characters that a good part of his audience would be familiar with, but also characters that he could change and mold to serve their role in the story. Something I really want to talk about later is the way he's used Hyde. Mm. But we can talk about that later. Well, I, the, what, the point I was making with like how many copyright-free characters are is he must have had some kind of love for this setting because he just picked the characters with all in this one setting. Yeah, absolutely. I think he also had a bit of like, I mean, he's a comic book, fan himself like he's definitely a super fan himself because he's written amazing ones. yeah a bunch of maybe, probably in the past maybe not so much these mm. days but the point i'm making is i think he definitely um wanted to make his own avengers or justice league and rather because he that's what he did with watchmen i don't and know this, if that was before or after this well, after was um or was watchmen before was this? watchmen 80s i think it might have been 80s oh my God, or early that. 90s so watchmen was his critique yes. of superhero comic it but, was his critique of the genre and it's it's very much a past not a pastiche but i uh or par- it's, a, it's a parody it's a homage it's a pastiche it's all of them i suppose pa- past a pastiche is where you do it to comic levels like comical levels um so i think watchman was his way of writing a gritty homage to comic book writing whereas yeah you're totally right 87 Whereas this was him trying to write something that would directly compete with the Justice League, Justice League comic. And this ran for a while. I'm not sure how long he wrote on it, but this it lasted quite a few volumes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and it goes right into the 20th century. Hmm. And so you get Jimmy Bond. Yep. And he brings it right into the 20th century and starts doing... They become a bit camp, I think. Like Jimmy Bond is kind of a bit of a pastiche of Bond in the same way that Woody Allen's Jimmy Bond is. Mm. But when he's dealing with the Victorian characters, he is trying to create these, not, he's not using the characters as written and he's changing some key things about the stories that they appear in and the lives that they led, but he is using them to create a Justice League style. Now we would probably more call it an Avengers style group, isn't he? And what's interesting is that there's always like, it's been so stereotyped nowadays, but the bringing together of the group. Um, what I said earlier, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's the, the first volume reads like the first 20 minutes of a heist film. Yes. Like uh, uh, Ocean's Eleven specifically. Is the one, or the Rick and Morty heist episode. Exactly. It's exactly yes. what it made me think of. Getting a team together with yeah. different skills and all that. <laughs> 
Well, and I, then they're all reluctant. <laughs> yes, and that's what I was going to point, make a point was the reluctance is normally like a, I work alone, I don't work in a team. This one is like a bloody woman. Like it's it's so just it's racism and sexism and violence is the only reason they don't like each other. Yeah, absolutely. And he he does, and again something that we talked about before we went live mm. was we should just not speak before the podcast starts yeah absolutely because just... i said really interesting stuff and i can't remember any of it i mean i don't recall you saying anything interesting but well, uh, but i'll take your word for it get out <laughs> get the fuck out um is the undercurrent of colonialism yes uh, that's very uh, that's actually one of my first notes is i thought a very apt uh line from the is it guy campion whatever his name is the guy kind of the boss of of Mina Murray, who's who gets them all together, uh, his line of um, uh, da, 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 the British Empire has always encountered difficulty in distinguishing its heroes and its monsters, and I thought there's no more perfect uh, description of the British Empire. Absolutely, like that. And this, and uh, like you're saying, this comic is almost a a pastiche of the British Empire, and I would say to a comical level because it's literally getting monsters to do their dirty work for yes, them. Absolutely. And ultimately do good and save lives. Which the British Empire did not do. <laughs> well, I mean, in the sense that they were stopping British people from being killed while invading countries, you could yeah. say that. But, <laughs> but I, one thing, like you, the Avengers and the Justice League parallel is one thing, but in more recent uh, uh, years, I don't, th- I don't think this was intentional. I think this was um, like a byproduct of how we, how we wrote it. But there's in later superhero uh, in Marvel and DC, you have like... The best one, most known example is the Suicide Squad. So that is getting... Some kind of suicide squad. Exactly. I've not seen it. I only know that line. I mean, he doesn't talk out of his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, what are we, some kind of Suicide Squad? So <laughs> like I got no teeth. <laughs> Old man Will Smith. <laughs> and I got his teeth in. Oh, Will Smith is kind of old man Will Smith. Now. Yeah, but he's Hollywood, so he looks younger. He like does still, do. yeah, he, he's aged well. Yes. But so um, the, there's a common thing where they get the enemies or, you know, villains together and force them to do good. And this is very much that as well. But this is like well before. I mean, there might have been Suicide Squad uh, comics before then, uh, potentially, for all I know. Find out. Suicide Squad, I think, is the most famous one. There's like mm. Marvel ones called the Thunderbolts, which was definitely later on. And... um. Villains either uh, willingly or unwillingly, more famously Suicide Squad, unwillingly because they put a bomb in their necks to make them do what they needed to be done. But this is very much that kind of vibe as well of let's get people who don't, who are evil essentially and get them to do good, just make them do good because we don't care about them. You want your mind blowing? When was the first Suicide Squad? Um, Before we put a man on the moon. Wow, really? Yeah, it was Mm. uh, the Suicide Squad. Squad debuted in The Brave and the Bold, number 25. Wow. In 1959. Damn, that is... So, yeah, Alamore might have been heavily influenced by that for this then. Possibly, yeah. Mm. Um, But so that was very much a, we don't care about villains, so let's get them in and just literally put a bomb in them and make them do what we want. And also, because it was like Black Ops type type stuff, the idea is that if they got caught doing something they shouldn't be doing, like disposing a dictator or whatever yeah then they could just be like if they didn't yeah if they didn't kill them or even they kill them be like what's this villain doing villain shit like who knows what who who could explain why villains do what they do like that kind of like right off there was kind of that but in this instance it was like people with special skills um who just they could barter with them to be like we'll give you your freedom yeah or we'll help you find a cure for your invisibility 
or whatever if you do what we need doing kind of thing yeah and there's a weird kind of coming together of the team despite and you root for them despite the fact that two of them are explicitly evil i would say to, yeah to more of a degree and this was a point i was going to make was in those suicide squad and uh thunderbolts and all that they're just general villains like superhero villains are kind of the worst you get typically and obviously mm. there's worse instances but typically it's like i killed some people like it's that kind of general like i blew up a building or like <laughs> you kill people whatever like ah you scamp kind of reaction whereas this hide is murdering women like he's literally he, I, I don't know, if, is he stalking them as Hyde or is he meeting them as Jekyll and then turning He's into Hyde? He's meeting them as Jekyll and then turning into Hyde, which yeah. is not the way that Jekyll operates in the novel. Je- no. Je- Je- Jekyll is Jekyll tries to sequester himself in the novel, and what you find is actually it's more of a breaking out of Hyde. Mm. This is something that I find really fucking interesting, mm. is that... Hyde operates the same way the Hulk operates. Yes. He has used Hyde to make an Incredible Hulk for him. To the extent that he's made him Simeon. Yes, for climbing walls and be, being more well, he, accessible. He's described as an or- or- orangutan. Yes. He's made him Simeon. He's Do you made think him that's part of like a de-evolution kind of, or like a de-evolution of the physical, if that makes sense? Possibly, but, and that's very present in Hyde, but in the original text... Hyde is described as being repulsively ugly and deformed, small, shrunken, and hairy. Mm. Whereas here we get a representation of Hyde as this great hulking, I use that word very, very carefully, oh, yeah. beast. Yeah, yeah. The, he has taken Hyde and said, I need an incredible Hulk. Yeah, literally. Because that would be really useful here. I'll use Jekyll and Hyde. And he explains it with like one kind of throwaway line, which is that, Obviously, as you say, in the original text, he Hyde was smaller and like he was meant to represent like the bad of man. So like, but but the physical matching the internal. See, he was ugly and deformed and everything. And the yeah, the way the way that they did that was to give him a disability. Yes, to make him deformed, which again, very typical of Victorian literature. Yes, this is a trope that is common throughout Victorian literature: is the ugliness and decay. Again, see also the portrait of Dorian Gray. Mm. And the uh, with this as well, how it's explained is a thorough line from Jekyll where he points out that the more he became Hyde, the Hyde took from him like the physicality. Mm. So he starts. So in this in this instance, they did start out like the novel. Yeah, and then uh, as they as he became Hyde, more Hyde became stronger, and Jekyll became weaker. Then to the point where Jekyll points out they used to be taller. Mm. So he's literally taking... But the thing is, it's not kind of equal because Jekyll's still a man and, and Hyde's become a, a Hulk. Yeah, so absolutely. it's definitely disproportionate, but that's meant to be the general explanation. Yeah. But so Hyde is... I mean, Jekyll... Jekyll's kind of like the enabler of evil. He's not really evil mm. himself, but he's like, you know... He, and he doesn't need the potion anymore. So he's very even more Hulkish because it's just... It's from stress, isn't it? Yes. Like, which is exactly the Hulk. So whereas before it was a potion, uh, potion or was it vial or whatever it was. It was a serum yes. that he'd made, but he didn't need it for every transformation. Well then, so that's key, that's continuing from the book then. He has more control over the transformations here though. Well, yes, exactly, yeah. Because he can hulk out. 
when needed. <laughs> yes, for the sake of the co- for the yeah. convenience of the story. And, and and that is plot armor, isn't it? That's yes. all that is. That's plot armor. Exactly. And that's that kind of one where you can you set your own rules at the beginning and then you just have to follow them as you go along. And you have to suspend disbelief because that's the role that he is. Yeah. He's he's your paladin with 20 AC, isn't he? Yes. And all, and like uh, the Hulk of the team has become its own trope as well, hasn't yes. it? Like we need a Hulk. Like, yeah. But um, yeah, so Hyde as he's he's really the main part of the of that contribution yeah. to the team. He he is evil because as I said, if if he's telling us Jekyll, he's like turning into Hyde, seeing a woman just going, Well, I'll just rip her head off. Mm. So you know, and the fact that it's it's much more insidious than like a bank robber who's killed people while robbing banks. Yeah. Because that's we as I feel like as an audience, we can in in fiction, we can excuse like random killing or killing for greed where it's not personal we can excuse it if it's not personal we can excuse it in the anti-heroes that we have in our culture exactly think of the fucking craze yeah yeah but then but, but that we excuse because they're also bad like they were all bad to each yeah, other yeah they were all sense. gangsters yeah but we can in comics and stuff we can more excuse like innocent bystanders because we never see or know the bystanders and we just know later like I, he's killed people while you know robin banks or being a super villain or blah 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 whereas this and i think this is like a credit to alan moore he really makes the monsters who become the necessary evils really makes the monsters from the start like yes. with hyde and especially with griffin the invisible man mm. who is also discovered essentially raping women like yeah, that is that's, ha- that's where they find it. raping children yeah 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 the, i didn't even girls. i didn't even yeah I didn't even click that, and that's terrific. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he's raping schoolgirls. Yes, so he, Alan was really making them evil from the start. So then, when it gets to the end, and I don't think I, I, I think as a teenager, being a desensitized teenager, when I first read it, I was a well, teenager, early twenties, around that time. But when I first read it, I was kind of a bit like, yeah, well, that, yeah, they're evil, but you know, like it's. <laughs> I think being desensitized, you don't think of the implications of what they're doing. And now as an older reader, I just hated Griffin the whole time. I yeah. Hyde, Hyde kind of changes, not changes. I mean, he changes in volume two, but mm. that's getting, we're only talking about volume one for now. Yeah. He changes as he goes along, but he doesn't continue that streak of violence. It's never really explained. Mm. Whereas what Griffin's doing is, is even more insidious, I think, than what Hyde was doing, because mm. that's like you know sexual gratification in terms of like violence and and all that it just it makes his characters so despicable like yeah in a way that's like, for me now at this age just unforgivable so like by yeah. the end i'm like griffin's still a fucking piece of shit yeah and he does nothing i mean there's nothing that a character can do to redeem themselves but also the redemption arc is a trope that exists in literature but there is no redemption arc for no exactly and uh, again, getting way ahead of ourselves, but volume two, it's, it's, it's something else what happens to him there. So We'll talk about volume two here, I think. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, we, we want to space out our Alan Moore because we, we, we want to ration out our Alan Moore discussions <laughs> just to keep it going for as long as possible. Like, let's span it out, yeah. He's not writing anything new. We really know that much. Eventually, we're going to have to do his masterclass and just review that. But, like, but print out like the written text of it all. <laughs> And with some doodles, so it's kind of like a comic. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, so the characters like Hyde, Griffin, pretty despicable, one more than the other. Uh, Quartermain is a real interesting one because he 
not only is he the reluctant hero, but he's he just hates Mina for being a woman, essentially, or a woman specifically who bosses him around. And he's yeah. so not used to that. He's almost like a very good representation of like the old and the new of the 90s when it came out. Because at that point, you probably still had people who thought like that. And mm. you had a kind of newer wave of people who didn't think like that. And he was yeah. definitely, I mean, you've always had that to an extent in, in any decade. But but the he definitely feels like the old guard. So do you know much about the novels that he appeared in? Literally zero. I wasn't even sure if he was a pre-existing character or not. Yeah, and we had this conversation, didn't we? And I did a bit of reading. Um, they are not... So, again, I, I have an English degree. And so I'm relatively familiar with British Victorian literature because that is something that's stuffed down your throat when you do an English. Of course. And I wasn't familiar with Haggard. Um, so they, it's from a novel called King Solomon's Knives, King Solomon's Mines. And then it has one sequel, which is a, uh, of, of which Quartermain is the eponymous hero. And then there is a whole series of prequel novels displaying his exploits. He's a hunter. Right. Um, so he's a hunter and a soldier. Um, and so within the context of that background, it kind of makes sense that he would be a misogynist. He's yeah. a masculinist. And especially from that time period, like 100%. Mm. So he is, he's by the standards of the setting, he's just a normal guy. And him... What I, what I find funny in a kind of warped way is how him and Nemo become more familiar and friendly with each other over their shared sexism and racism. <laughs> they're just like, because, oh, you're like me, but just on the other side. And they're the two characters that you would expect dislike each other the most, with Quartermain being a British soldier. Yes. And Nemo being a essentially an early iteration of an Indian with anti-colonial feeling. Yeah. I love the backstory of Nemo because, mm. like, so I've not read anything from the original. Is the Ten Thousand Leagues Under the Sea? Ten Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, yes. which I'm familiar with, but not overly familiar with. So I, without having read it, my assumption of it was that it was just a a fantastical voyage. Like, here's a man who's built a magical submarine, and we're going to go deep underwater and blah. Um, so I don't know how much of I'm guessing it is part of the original text that he's like a massive anti-British fighter for the for for India, right? Yeah, I again, I haven't read it 15 years ago. Mm. Like it's one of those that I read as a schoolboy. Um and so I'm not super familiar with it anymore. I like how I think he's got a great backstory because he has that kind of like he was feared by the British and so bringing him along that well, he's considered at one point uh worse by Cormain, worse than Hyde. Yeah, because um, I actually noted down the text of it. Um, and if I just going to find it now. So. At one point, Quartermain literally says Nemo's worse than Hyde. Um, and he says, I oh, no, someone else says Nemo's worse than Hyde. And Quartermain says, I agree. Hyde can be persuaded. Nemo can't. Yeah. And literally, I read that line. I went what are you talking about? <laughs> like, you've literally, not only have you persuaded both, like, you've, they're both on the team, but if I was like, hey, you need to persuade either Nemo or Hyde to do something, I'm like, Nemo every day. Like, he's a, he's a bloke. Like, he's a bloke on the wrong side of a war. Hyde is a literal monster who murders people. Jeez. So, 
Nemo part um at the end of tw- twenty thousand leagues under the sea, not ten. <sighs> um, it's heavily suggested that Nemo had to go into undersea exile after his family was slaughtered by a powerful imperialist nation. I wonder who they were talking <laughs> Just about. Just one of the many powerful <laughs> imperialist nations that were around at the time. I mean, there's there were so a many. <laughs> there's, who who could possibly narrow down <laughs> the list to which one? So yeah, the original character was an anti-imperialist, right? Um, and so it kind of makes sense. That I don't I don't think it's ever explicitly stated that he is Indian and the imperial nation that he is running from are the British. Hmm. But it within the context, it was it wasn't exactly a leap of faith for Alan Moore to characterize him as such. And it's good that Alan Moore used that to the benefit of the story, because if it was only hinted at in the original text, then him bringing it just to the forefront in a very applicable way. And yeah. it gives him this interesting background. And like Quartermain keeps referring to be like, well, we are doing this for country. And he was like, fucking you are. Like, I ain't. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I actually can't remember the time I had why he agrees to it. I think they would give him some pardon or something, maybe. Something else that's really worthy of note here, and again, it's something I've just discovered. I should have done this research beforehand. Mm. Not a British novel. Oh, to uh, 20,000 20, Leagues? Yeah. It's written by a bloke called Jules Verne. It's a French novel. Okay. I mean, it's close enough. It's a French, <laughs> it's a French novel with an undercurrent theme of fuck the British yeah. from the late Victorian era. Well, the French always like that. And, they, so. <laughs> <laughs> and it's okay. We could say that because it's fun to make fun of the French. Yeah, it's yeah, it's fun to make fun of the French in a very friendly, we like the French really way. Well, do we? But anyway, um, yeah, no, that's uh, Nemo is a very interesting character. I like that he's just like his thing is technology, so he's almost like the Tony Stark, but just with a submarine. Absolutely. Only. Um, Cormain and him like get along well. Uh, in, well, I say well, they get along. They understand each other towards the end. Yeah, there's a great moment where they have to share a room at the the girls' boarding school. Yes, yes. And yes, was yes. it? There's one bed, and Quatermain's like, "Well, I guess me and Nemo will have to share these two beds, and Miss Murray, you're gonna have to sleep in the the closet." And then the next panel is him and Nemo in the closet. He's like, "Women." <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> and, and Quatermain's just sat on a chair, looking yeah. really miserable. <laughs> exactly. Now, I think we're going through most of the main cast. Uh, Murray, Mina Murray is an amazing character. Oh, Mina Murray holds the whole thing together. So, like, one of the most capable of the entire series. Yeah. So, like, she's the one who's literally, like, managing them without even them realizing they're being managed, other than just complaining about taking orders from a woman every once in a while. And what's fascinating, I think what makes her so interesting is that actually, if we're talking about the characterization of Mina Murray from Bram Stoker's Dracula, mm. she had done a lot that was noteworthy, and actually she had done a lot which would have which would have been worthy of Quatermain's respect. Right. She. Do you know much? Do you know the story of Dracula? I know. I literally read like a Wikipedia blur uh, of the plot, so I I know generally that her and her husband and they meet up with Van Helsing and yeah. they kind of all band together to kill. Uh, but she gets kidnapped by Dracula as well, doesn't she? No. Ah. Well, yeah, kind of. Dracula drinks her blood, um, and then he he infects her, and she's able to become cured through basically her own volition. But one of the things that is present in her characterization is that she is very smart and very capable. Mm. And John Hawkins is a fucking idiot. Right. 
John Hawking, like there's there's this scene in Dracula where John Hawkins is trying to shave and Dracula comes up behind him and he realizes that he can't see Dracula in the mirror and the mirror smashes. And his takeaway from that is that he can't have a bloody good shave anymore. <clears throat> <laughs> and so he's just realized that this guy who has him entrapped in a creepy castle has no reflection. And his main concern that is that he's going to come out of this incident a little bit stubbly. Mm. Which is the worst cop possible uh, of that time. Like, you'd be cast out if you were anything more than a five o'clock shadow, obviously. Yeah, unless you're a navalman. Yes, because they're allowed to do, they're allowed to have tattoos and all that. Yeah, no, they, yeah, they loved a good mm. tattoo. Yeah. From no. the Orient. <laughs> Where'd you get this? Abroad. <laughs> yeah, literally, yeah. I went to Japan and somebody tattooed me. Nowadays, it's lads coming back with tribal tattoos. Like, what does it mean? It means... It means Peace and love in yeah. their culture. Like, well, it's it? um, it, uh, Edward, uh, Eddie, Prince Albert, mm. and George the Sixth were very famously tattooed. Really? Yeah. When Eddie was fourteen, um, Queen Victoria and um, Edward the Seventh sent them on a three-year world tour with the Navy. So right. they were they were they were adolescents. They went just fuck off with the Navy for three years. And they went to Japan and both found the tattooing there really fascinating. And so they both got ha- they both got inked. And so yeah, George the George the Sixth, you know, very stoic and George the Sixth, World War One George the Sixth was riddled with tattoos. And there must have been the old version with like a needle and like a, a light tapping into the skin, wasn't it? Yeah, it's a needle on a it's a needle on a bamboo stick, which they would tap in with a hammer. Right. They would literally tap it in with a mallet. Because the ink ink needs to get past the external layer of skin to the it under. Needs to get through. It needs to get through the outer dermis. Yeah. yeah, and just the worst, like the worst tattoo of like, what is it meant to be? Like, it's a butterfly. <laughs> Look, stretching the skin out. Like, you can see it now. Like, geez. Well, they they both had tattoos in the very traditional Japanese style. I don't know what mm. their specific tattoos were, but it would have been koi fish and tigers and dragons and waves and right. cherry blossoms and that kind of stuff. Fair. I'm just seeing the time, so we definitely need to get back on track with the League yeah, of Yeah, sorry. No, it's all right. Like, the, this is what the, the viewers keep coming back for. If this they, is if what they everyone do. loves. Exactly. Um, I think what, a, a big spanning theme that we're mm. good to get across is... Talk about broad themes. Well, I think the broadest one is, and this kind of, this feeds also into just a larger conversation itself, yeah. is how much do you excuse racism and sexism of characters who are from a time where that is a hundred percent what they would be like if they yes. were from if they were real in that time yes so i've got like most of my notes on other comics we've done is like i like when this part happened oh i like they did this or I like when this character did this whatever uh, most of my notes from here are just written horrible things that characters have said yeah and just being like it, again, like the, when I was saying earlier about low and high fantasy, I yeah. would describe this definitely as low fantasy. Yeah. So the point is, what is uh, 17th century Britain like? 19th? Yeah, 19th. I always get that. I always go the wrong way. What I'm here for. <laughs> well, so I just <laughs> I just edited in the dings on the Pokemon Adventures one where you just kept calling it a comic or a game and I kept oh, yeah. correcting you to manga. <laughs> managed, to, managed to find a third party like royalty free ding <laughs> to put into it and the first couple is just ding and then nothing happens there's only like the fourth instance where i'm like i think i'm gonna put a ding in those <laughs> earlier ones so if i keep doing it we'll do the we'll do the same for me yeah but um so yeah in the 19th century like what england was at the time and if you had these characters they would have been all the bad things yes. so it becomes that 
how much is it of the author? And I don't mean Alan Moore specifically. I'm not like ragging on him, but just generally, how much do you put that down to an author? It's like, well, you've written it as fiction, so you could do mm. anything. But then is that excuse? And I don't want to say excuse like, like that's the other side of the argument. Is it an excuse where you say, well, it's low fantasy, so I had to put all the sex and racism in and then make them say all these horrible things? So, based, so this is purely based on his whole corpus. Based on the rest of Alan Moore's work, I would argue that actually he isn't. He 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 doesn't revel in writing um, misogynistic or racist characters. Yeah, and I would agree that I, I again I'm not putting anything on more specifically. I think here it's relevant to the cultural and socioeconomic environment that he's placed these characters in. Yes, and actually it would be really jarring if. Portermain and Nemo responded positively to taking orders for from a woman. Yes, exactly. Um, we're we're talking about, you know, particularly with Quartermain, we're talking about a character here who has had this experience of war. He was galvanized in war, which is such in in that era, a really masculinist exploit. It's men being men. It's men being manly men with other men. And even today, even though women being in war and being in the military and everything is widely accepted as it should be it's the act is still considered quite masculine yeah it is isn't it mm. um and so i think one of the things that you have to it's contextual isn't it and we have to consider the context within which these things are being said and done yes and actually they're not they're not character aspects that we're being asked to celebrate Yes, and that's one of the most important things, I think, that yeah. makes this work, and for any text. And it does get missed sometimes in the the more, and I hate using this word to describe it as a, as a side of an argument, but the more woke side of it, and as, that's coming from someone who considers themselves woke, yeah. but, or tries to be at the very least. But the, the, the extreme of that side is, is well... Um, if it's fiction, why can you just make them say or do anything? Or why yeah. did you have to be that realistic? You've already given them powers or you've already yeah. have characters powers. Why can you? And the, the defense is, and I, and I hundred percent on the side of the defense, but I still find it interesting, you know, seeing that from both sides, but the defense is I wanted it to be this setting, but with these fantastical elements. Yeah. And I think if you had sanitized, those characters and align them with a modern acceptable viewpoint they wouldn't have been rounded believable characters and do i think that because i would like to live in a world without sexism we shouldn't portray sexists and misogynists in fiction hmm. i would argue that actually accurate portrayals of misogynists is valid because yeah. these people exist they walk among us yes 100 these people still exist and so actually it would be disingenuous not to represent them in fiction i think what's interesting is when you start to choose who you celebrate yes and that in itself does become its own problem because there's characters who just in across literary and fiction and media there's characters who should not be celebrated and are one of the <coughs> Andrew Tate. <coughs> <laughs> I was I was going to bring it around actually. I was going to say one of the most common in comic books is Rorschach from Watchmen. Oh yeah, yeah who yeah. Alan Moore specifically was like, 
I hate the fact that people like him. He's meant to be mm. vilified. He's meant to be like not good at all. Well, he's there's meant to be something almost inhuman about Rory. Yeah, he, he and there's a literal scene where he loses his humanity. Yeah, and he uh, I don't think he uses those words, but he basically describes it. That's as what that. happens, isn't it? Yeah, the night he became Rorschach. Yeah, and it's such a vi- like the visual language that's used in those panels is so fucking vivid and on the nose. Exactly, it couldn't. If you're reading it with anything towards a critical eye, it couldn't be more clear. Yes, that that's what Alan is trying. Alan and whoever the artist was for Watchmen are trying to get across. And again, I think with the with the with the misogyny that's inherent with some of these characters, they are not the aspects of those characters that you're meant to celebrate. I don't know that there is anything about these characters that you're meant to celebrate. Well, like. As it comes back to, Quartermain and Nemo are the most the most potential for not even like redemption, but just not being as much of of a curmudgeon assholes. Yeah. But then you then he's made a very good like scale of of like how much evil can they do beforehand and, mm. and be accepted afterwards. So I feel like by the end of the first volume, you come around more on, on Quartermain and Nemo, hide is just further away from the shit he did. Yes. And that's the only kind of like, and you don't want that to be the only reason that yeah. he, you know, he's more tolerated or liked or whatever. Griffin is just always an asshole. Yeah. So you're never that far away from what he did. But I think was was good. And the good point you made earlier, and I think this is very important to modern literature and media and everything, is the characters are meant to be celebrated. They're meant to be vilified or like in comedy you're meant to like laugh at the characters yeah. not with them that's the like the bit my my favorite reference is always sunny in philadelphia they do the worst things because they are the worst characters yes. that's the joke and, um, and and that's what's interesting here is that we're presented it's 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 a great representation of the anti-hero yes and again you have such a, a scale to choose from um, mm. I said I've got some of the uh, the quotes that I found particularly uh, interesting or egregious. You decide. Okay. You decide which. Can I decide which on a one by one basis? Sure. Yeah. So uh, first one from Mister Bond. Now I thought this is interesting because of not only the character um, backstory that's hinted, but also mm. the way that it's viewed as in society. But Mister Bond implies Miss Murray is far beyond the social pale, being ravished by a foreigner and all that. Quite against your will, of course. But then people do talk so, don't they? Yeah. I thought that was such like a, a explanation of backstory and how she's viewed in modern society. But yeah, and so I think I think you found that one egregious. Mm, definitely. But doesn't it reflect more on him than her? I think it reflects more on society it, than her, for Victorian sure. Victorian propriety. Yeah. Because she's nothing that he's described there was her choice at all and he and he goes so far as to say ravished by foreigner you're quite against your will but then the implication of just because it was against your will doesn't mean the rest of the world's going to see it that way and that's the problem with society at the time and you you know he's he's characterized as being a fat man in a fucking nice suit with a big hat extremely representative of upper class society absolutely and so instantly that paints that that tells me everything I need to know about him. Yes. It and put me straight in mind of the Victorian mill owner. Yes. And it gives you her backstory, but in a way where you have to really, you just have to lift the veil of like, 
oh, this is what yeah. actually has happened, but this is how society's viewed it. And this is, I think, what I was getting at earlier, which is that actually Mina's backstory is the one that is elucidated the least. Yes. And that makes her such, in this context, a fascinating character. Mm. Like, I imagine if you hadn't read Bram Stoker's Dracula, yeah, you'd have no idea. What Coming out of this, you'd go, I'm going to read that book. What happened mm. to Mina Murray? Yeah, no, def- definitely. More so than the other characters. Mm. And that almost, I think that almost kind of speaks as well to like the fact that no one bothers about her backstory. I don't mean that Alan Moore didn't, but I mean, yeah. literally in the story, everyone else is like, oh, he's done this and he's done that. And oh, he did. He got up to this. Murray's like, who's that? It's like, I don't know, some chick. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's literally, absolutely. that's how they kind of react to it. But he's the first one. She, he, She's the first one he found. Yeah, yeah. And she yeah, she and 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 again throughout the, the first volume she displays herself to be competent time and time again. Yes. Oh yeah, she's again the most capable, the most competent. She is the Captain America of the team, I would say. There we go. I was wondering who she would be. Yeah, she's the leader but without the respect of her peers, which is an even harder task. So is she Captain America or is she Samuel Jackson? Captain America because she's in the she's, she's in, the, in the thick of it. So it's it would be uh Bond uh would be the Samuel Jackson type almost because he oh, kind of sad, he's it? from the behind the scenes instructing them. Yeah. Like that would be his kind of um comparableness. I suppose Quartermain to an extent is a kind of Captain America as well, but more because of his skill set. His physicality. Yes, exactly. Almost makes him more of a oh, what's his name? The bow and arrow guy. Hawkeye. Hawkeye. Yes. Could and be. again, Quartermain that's a really good uh, analogy. They're quite analogous because they don't have powers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so Mina, Mina almost has these powers because she survived and came back from that vampiric experience. Yes, but as far as we know, she doesn't have any supernatural or no powers or anything. No, no. Um, what's we got next? So this one I thought was a good one as well. Nemo. Be- towards the beginning of the story yeah if i must have a woman on my ship it is preferable they are alive i think <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> no like, i'm re- Nemo, i remember you, that one what are you, what are you hinting at <laughs> jesus he's not sure he's and just I, not sure i feel like with that that's him trying to be flippant like he's not yes. he's not giving away anything about his character i think he's literally trying to be a bit of an asshole in the situation joke, isn't it yeah of course it's a horrible joke but i think but uh, I mean, at, in the setting, that was probably like a bloody rip roar. That was, yeah, absolutely. That went down great. Yeah, was like, oh, that was probably one of the first instances the core main was like, I think this newer guy's all right. <laughs> I was, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> I was skeptical at first. <laughs> oh, you hate her as well? Like, oh my god, did we just become best friends? <laughs> like that stepbrothers. <laughs> oh, I think we've put more into the core main emo <laughs> friendship than is actually in the text. I think we've like fan, we've shipped them in have a weird we? way. Yeah, I think we might have. Done. Oh, I have, admittedly. Alan, if you're listening, can we get a post, a post League of Extraordinary Gentlemen Nemo, Nemo quarter main spinoff? Well, there's possible reasons why that could or could not happen uh, related to even past volume two uh, volume okay. three kind of onwards um where they some of the characters in it some are not but yeah. we'll get to that i suppose the passage of time yes exactly. necessitates that some of them aren't in it anymore exactly yeah um i can't remember oh yeah this was a, this was another nemo another nemo classic oh. uh, madam that's enough I pray God that all Englishwomen are not now of your manly ilk. I remember that one. <laughs> and it's so interesting because her femininity is questioned 
so many times. But, but literally because she's giving orders. Like, like, that's the only reason. But remember when she meets the schoolmaster and she says, oh, you have such a robust womanly frame. And it's like, what does that mean? Mm. What, what do you mean by a robust womanly frame? Yeah, exactly. Or it's words to that effect. I forget the exact quote. Something like that. I might, I might have it actually later in the list, but um, I thought the fact that this is this is a very blunt way of putting it, but the token woman character dressing as the hooker for bait. Yeah, uh, but she did it. Yes, she, and she that, made that choice. That was going to be my other point. Was on the one hand, that's like a a serious thing, like you know, a, a whole story um point but on the other hand she is literally like right we need a hooker i'm getting dressed up like, <laughs> as soon as he gets out here bloody shoot him or whatever like that he she's like right this is the plan this is what we're doing and then quartermain fucks off to a pharmacy to buy more skag yeah and that's and yeah he again that plays in the point she's capable and at the time quartermain not that capable because yeah. he just he's like jonesing for a hit like yeah He's Absolutely. unreliable to the worst extent in that moment. Yeah. To the point where she almost dies. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I think that's a good representation of like the male character isn't just all just isn't just suddenly, you know, saving the day. He and gets there like towards the end. Yeah. You know, and just that's also the point where Jekyll picks her up and turns into Hyde. Now Well, she wonders she goes back to a room as Jekyll and then he turns as Hyde. Yeah. He? So is this is this an instance where Jekyll is just trying to find some companionship and Hyde comes out every once in a while. Well, or is Jekyll actively sourcing women for Hyde? This is, yeah, this, this was my point earlier. Was like, I, I initially, I was on the worst side. I was like, oh, he's like stalking and killing women. And then only now we're talking about it. I'm like, well, what was it? And I'm not saying it's definitely not excusable in any in any sense, but is you've got to wonder the intention of the alter ego, one versus the other. And it's left ambiguous, I think. Yes, exactly. It's left ambiguous as to what is actually happening there. And possibly we're reading more into it than was there, but I think that's part of you know, yeah, examining I mean, a text. Exactly, and that's part of the fun as well. Like, more does leave room for mm, this interpretation. Yeah. And then he gets mad when people make adaptations of get, and they get the wrong idea. It's like, no, I didn't mean that. <laughs> what God. did you mean? <laughs> yes. well, you, you still got to work out for yourself. I can't, I can't tell you, but I'm mad you got it wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. God, I hope more likes us when we, <laughs> when we eventually meet him. And it's... Because I think of Moore's other sexually aggressive male characters. Yeah. I'm thinking of the one who looks like Wolverine in Watchmen. Uh, the comedian. The comedian. Yes. Who is also a shit bloke. A sh terrible human being, yes. but a straight up and down rapist. Yes. Yeah. There is no ambiguity in the comedian's um, proclivities in that area. Nope. He fucking tried to rape a woman and he also forcibly impregnated that impregnated that vietnamese woman yep he is just straight up and down a rapist yes um and, and he's never redeemed but the no. but the point of the end of the watchman is the how good a character can uh in silk specter can come from the chaotic evil of the comedian and yeah. his actions and that's what inspires dr mahan to be like i guess i'll save the world yeah absolutely and yeah, no, and 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 the comedian needed to be the character that he was for that story to work. Yeah, but he's not a he's not a character that you are ever encouraged to align yourself with. No. Whereas Jekyll, it's a bit more ambiguous with Jekyll, isn't it? I think on the one hand, Jekyll, Jekyll kind of skirts the line between sympathetic and pathetic. Yeah, which is very much in line with his original characterization in the novel. Exactly. And he starts off as a really decent bloke, isn't he? Like, mm. he's a kind of revered, like, liked 
like he's a handsome or at least normal man. He's he's a handsome doctor. Yes, and then he indulges in being Hyde, and even though physically it takes a toll, it's the act of the act of being evil is like a release for him, and it's it's the it's the temptation of evil or evil acts, isn't it? Yeah. So Jekyll's relationship with Hyde is the thing that you are encouraged to write about when you write about Jekyll and Hyde at a degree level. Right. Um, the interplay between those two characters and what they represent is very much the central focus of the novel. But Hyde, it, Jekyll, becomes a reclusive. He sequesters himself from society. Right. He, you know, removing yourself from society in the Victorian era is a death in and of itself. Mm. When I say society, I mean eating nice meals in drawing rooms with other rich people yeah, and refusing the society of the right people and choosing the society of the wrong people. It's Dorian Gray's downfall. And that should always be the, the at the time that was should always, and even today, that should always be the goal of everyone according to them. Like oh. you should always aspire to be part of this, the 1% essentially. Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 and in the culture of Victorian Britain, mm. it's so important. We think about, the think about the poets that we revere from the victorian era yeah they are the people who were invited to society but not accepted do you think there was points in that time where someone was like oh my god i haven't seen john in uh, in a, a couple of weeks i think he sequestered himself from society like gee oh, i miss him and then you, the next day it's like you're all right it's like where have you been it's like oh i went on a ship like, i went on a holiday like, and, yeah no and that happened we thought you died yeah and that, like, that not was... literally but societally yeah but you think you think like we we talk about oscar wilde and lord byron mm. these two fascinating characters characters figures i mean they were they were a bit of character weren't they, they? kind of were but yeah, they were invited to society, into society, but not accepted by it. Right. And so the idea of somebody like Jekyll, who had that open invitation into Victorian society and was accepted and liked. And then choosing to, to go away from it. But isn't that, isn't that also the kind of, the, uh, the, not the plot, but like the, the meaning? Is that like, it was a bad thing for him to turn down high society? No, he did it out of fear. Right. He did it out of fear. So he was he was refusing engagements and he was sequestering himself out of fear for what Hyde would do. He was right. trying to, he was entrapping himself. He was trying to trap Hyde. In but a way, it was it, one of the deaths that Jekyll died. Yeah, it kind of an early uh, metaphor for like social anxiety, almost or like depression. Like fuck yeah, no. I th- and I think I think probably now um, you could with with the focus that we have on mental health now, mm. you could probably do a reading yeah um you could probably do a reading and you could say like that could have been influenced without the author even realizing like yeah i mean because it was something that happened to people so there's there's readings about um homosexuality uh which you can do and you can you can subject jekyll and hyde to a really 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 extensive reading along those lines and it's one of the ways you can examine the text and i imagine that that would actually be a 20th century reading that's being imposed on a Victorian text, which is one of the things that we do. Yeah. It's one of the ways that texts live on, is that we see things in them that relate to our current cultural obsessions. Yeah. Um, but new yeah. examinations, new interpretations. Exactly, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, but yeah, I think, I think Hyde, uh, Jekyll is an interesting character in this text, and the way that he's been translated over is interesting as well. Yeah. Another very smart, very capable move by Miss Murray. Uh, yeah. She is the one that uses the paint to to display Griffin, the Invisible yes. Man. Yes. And that, 
such an early trope of what would become like so well used in every kind of iteration (laughs) and scooby-doo exactly but she was just literally like hey there's paint like she was the only one who thought of it for the uh and nemo are trying to capture and wrestle a invisible man in a almost pitch black room yes and she's like i'm i see a shortcut here i'm gonna take her so again like those were one of the moves i saw and i was like she's so smart like she she really is under she's really undersold again character who had dealt with an insidious force that she couldn't see yes and yeah that's she's so kind of underplayed in a way where i'm literally kind of on the edge of like did more just not he gave but it's he must he, yeah so i think this is a really intelligent display mm. of a very capable smart i see I keep saying capable that is the most like a very resourceful yes. character in murray but the, it's so underplayed in the story, but Moore's giving her these key moments of like, if it weren't for her, they'd have been fucked. But what's fascinating is that they're all contextually sat. And so what Moore has done here is taken one of the characters, not let you peek under the curtain of what their backstory is, yeah, but brought it into it in such a well-integrated, well-considered way that actually, once you think about Dracula a bit, yeah. you kind of go, yeah, it makes sense that Mina would have thought that. It makes yeah. sense for Mina to have been the first person to have reached that conclusion. Yeah. Um, but actually, he's done it in such a way that it, you kind of have to look for it. And she's, what's interesting as well, is it's one of those things where like, it's not that she went through the whole Dracula thing and then it it made her this way. I think it's that she is, she survived the Dracula thing. She was one of many potential victims, but then no, she was, she could have been one of many victims, but her resourcefulness is what made her survive. And now she continues that role. And and she was a driving force. Yeah. And that was a, that's a really early, like female led, like female protagonist, like Bram Stoker's Dracula. She, she wasn't a protagonist. I think I think I would still argue that Hawkins was the protagonist, even though he's a bumbling idiot. Even though he's a bumbling idiot, but it was her that killed Dracula. Yeah, it so, was yeah. it was her that it was her that facilitated well, was her that facilitated Van Helsing and killing Dracula. Mm. And without her, Dracula wouldn't have been vulnerable. Yeah, it was her that kind of um, she was the person who developed an understanding of Dracula's vulnerabilities. And again, that is the same trait that she displays throughout this text yes. is that she it's it's often her it's, it's it's her that kind of discovers each character's vulnerability um it's interesting to think did more intentionally make her resourceful because of how he liked her in the book or did he interpret her as resourceful in the original text and think oh i have to make her that because that's what she was yeah absolutely i think it's a bit of both like, i mean he yeah. could have changed it if he wanted. And she strikes me, you know, often writers will have a mouthpiece within their text. Mm. Tyrion in Game of Thrones. Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings. Stand in for the author. Ab- exactly, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Sam Vimes in the Discworld novels is another great example right. of the author having a character through which they will voice their own feelings and opinions. And Mina kind of feels like I mean, she's the best character, so obviously he's like, oh, I'll be that one. <laughs> like, but, I'll but be the best one. But she has this common sense approach and this pragmatism that feels like it's... 
she, I mean, she is she is the impetus for a lot of the resolutions that Moore sees to the problems he's created. Yeah, yeah. And so on some level, I kind of feel as though she's his mouthpiece. I, there's definitely an interpretation there for sure. And but mm. to an extent, you could say any of any series that has a good character or a, a, a capable, resourceful character is probably the author as well. Yeah. Or the authors after us to be like, yeah, I'm that one. <laughs> who's, who's the best one? Yeah, I'm that one. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm the one that everyone who, likes Who do you the think's the best one? Yeah, I'm that one. Uh, that's it's such a more thing to do i don't think um a few more notes uh i a quote from quartermain which oh, I which i had my own interpretation which is yeah uh, so his line was Infuri- infuriating woman like my first wife in a lot of ways and i read that and i thought no wonder they got sean connery for the film <laughs> there was oh so one thing that i forgot to mention um which for the reason we're doing in the first place, I love the art. I love the illustrations. Yeah, I, I love was... it. It's like a cartoon. Um, it's like a, a newspaper cartoon style, like those old satirical yeah. political cartoons, that kind of style, but with color. Made to look Victorian. Yes, exactly. Yeah. In a way that From Hell wasn't. Yeah, From Hell was very um, co- newspaper strip comic style, wasn't it? From Hell remind the walking dead reminded me of from hell just by being black and white no in the way the character models were drawn okay fair enough um and so from hell is kind of that more gritty realist art style yes and then watchman very much looks like a comic book from the 1980s yes but this has an art style all of its own and mm. it, and initially I... I didn't enjoy it I think is why it was so memorable for me because it was just it's cartoons, uh, uh, comics that have their own unique art style. Mm. When you then think back to them, they're more vivid in your head. Whereas like DC and Marvel, they have their their kind of templates that have to be reused over and over there's again. There's a there's a hum, uh, there's a homogenous yes. Element. And you when you think of a bit, you just kind of think of like the actions. But you, uh, like for me personally, I don't know if everyone else like this, but when it's the same style over and over again, you think of the actions in like, oh, and then this happened and this happened. But whereas with this, I can visualize in my head these specific panels because they're so memorable because they're such a unique style. Yeah. And it's colored beautifully. Yes. And especially credit one, the part I most liked in in respect to Kevin O'Neill, um, the bit where their uh, Quartermain and Jekyll are in the uh, opium den. Yes. And they're almost getting caught out, or yes. Quartermain almost is. And Quartermain's talking his way out of it. He's mm. like, ah, like, uh, is they're like, hang on, why are you saying this? Or like, you don't know this guy. And he's like, ah, all right. I'm, he, I owe him a bit of money. Like, yeah. he doesn't know yeah, I owe him either. But all through this conversation, Jekyll's almost turning into Hyde. Yeah. And you see Hyde features coming through in these like six panels. I thought it was so good how we got like the halfway between Jekyll and Hyde look yeah. in like the middle panels and then how it goes back again and like the color comes through a little bit as well and his expression is like you can see him like trying to keep it physically in and in line with the dialogue. So as soon as it's kind of like they're like, all right, fine, get out of here kind of thing, you seem like, oof, like calm down again. Do you know, I didn't notice it on the first pass. Yeah, no, so I didn't when I first read it. It was and only the second yeah, one. Yeah, the, the visual language of it is stunning, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I, was, I was looking at those facial expressions and the look, and I was just like, God, that O'Neill guy. Really and again, I think, I think this is something that I often feel about more, is that he's not a comic book writer because that's the medium he likes. He's a comic book writer because that's the medium that allows him to best tell the story he wants to tell. Yeah. And I really feel that here. I really feel as though this 
works as a comic book in a way it wouldn't work as a novel and that's one of that's just one of the things that made me consider that mm. is that actually he used the visual language so well there and potentially that's a, a positive note you could prescribed to any great comic like because by by virtue of being a great comic it has to be a good use of any comic that's doing it yeah, well dialogue and actions against visual representation and yeah. panel layout and like, like we said before panel layout you never really know who actually dictated it until you get the core scripts and isn't it nicely laid out <laughs> exactly yeah good use of those six panels and uh, and and those big one panels as well for like a big major shot as well yeah absolutely um any other notes uh yep the art of jekyll ah so what we were saying or i was saying before about the scale of like evil and like irredeemable actions yeah i there's a hard point that puts the end of the scale because i think it's quartermain describes quartermain or murray um describes uh griffin they is deemed as an incapable of suffering remorse yeah and that's like the worst like level because even hyde it's hard to say what Hyde him like Hyde only feels, but mm. he's got the Jekyll aspect, which yeah, is yeah, yeah. which is very remorseful and sad of what he's done. So, and they are part of each other. Whereas Griffin, Griffin is Griffin is the most evil psychopathic, and yeah. and it's such a scary thing. Like the the recent Invisible Man film kind of got this yeah. across well, but the the fear of not just a monster or something that can harm you, but something with such sadistic intentions and you can't see it. Yeah, you can't see it and it doesn't care if it hurts you. Well, no, it wants to. It yeah. gets pleasure from hurting you. Yeah. Like, that's like the the combination of the of the worst aspects of a of a creature. So, where am I on the notes? Uh, no, do you know? Do you know? Notes. This will be cut out as well. Maybe. I don't know. I'll see how I feel. You never know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, one other thing. Uh, this mm. is... Uh, this is noteworthy mainly... I mean, it's noteworthy in itself. The fact that Hyde can see Griffin. Yeah. And that plays a big part in Volume 2. Right, okay. And I don't want to spoil anything, but it's huge. Yeah, do you know what? I noticed that, and I don't really have developed feelings about it, do you? I think at the... Like, without... If if I didn't know Volume 2, I the most it should be taken at this stage is just... Hmm, that's interesting. Like that's mm. that's the biggest at this level. When you get to volume two, then you go, uh, and then it, yeah, right, okay. So that's noteworthy. Um, I like the well. This is a part of the whole larger theme that we were talking about before, but it's the part, and this technically spoilers, but I think we haven't really bothered with spoilers because there's not much. I just say it's the end is not interesting. It's interesting. This is probably the most interesting aspect of the ending, right? So spoilers mm. for the end. If you want to read volume yeah, two, yeah. go out of your way to read it. It's a great piece of literature and comics and everything. But there's a point in the end where they're escaping the enemies. Um, yep. And I noted how when they're working together to escape, that's the moment where despite all the evil shit that some of the characters have done and how unlikable they've been, that's the moment for me as a reader why I went, I'm rooting for them now. Right, yeah, to yeah, escape. yeah. Galvanizes them as something that you can get behind. Yeah. And in that moment, you forget how evil shit Griffin's done. Like, mm. especially, that's the that's the real mark. Like, I'm I'm like, I hope they all get out. I didn't actively think, except Griffin. I hope he, <laughs> I hope he gets fucking killed. Yeah. Like, and it's not because I feel differently about Griffin. It's just that them working together as a unit. Because that's they get out in a very kind of like, let's hold on to hide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, Al, uh, Quartermain uses his spear gun or whatever it is yep. 
and they work together to all get out. Yeah. And in that moment, because they're working together, you want them to you want them to be successful together. Yeah. And that's absolutely. the power of good storytelling and like tension and like building suspense and you know, that's you know, it's it's more at its finest. When you yes. strip everything else away, more is great at just making you root. Not even necessarily for good characters, but just rooting for whoever the protagonist is. Yeah. Um, and I wrote that as, despite the characters being monsters, it's still oddly entertaining to see them working together and then rooting for them. Yeah. Um, another, another line of Quartermain, it's, it's all I can do to stop myself from giving her a jolly good smack sometimes. <laughs> Definitely Connery. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. Do you know, because I'd, I'd never read this until we read it. Yeah. And yeah, I found it really interesting reading Quartermain's character that they had cast him beautifully. Yes. And you know, the, so if we mainly kind of move past talking about the original comic, uh, it's worth still mentioning that the, the film adaptation, uh, if only for the fact that it was one of my favorites as a kid. And was it's, it? But so here it is, it's one of the things I had on VHS and I was like a, a streaming uh I was a person who would benefit from like streaming content before yeah. that was a thing because I would just watch VHSs over and over Me again. Too. So, and I think that was common for our, yeah. Uh, yeah, for our age. But um, so this was one of them, this adaptation. I, this is well before I read the comic, so I didn't know anything about it. Yeah. It was only years later when I got, you know, the internet came about and I got into the zeitgeist of it all and it was yeah. like, this is the worst comic adaptation of all time. And I was like, oh, geez, why? Like, <laughs> I really like it. And it wasn't until years later after that that I read the comic and, oh yeah, the film sucks. Yeah. Like, but I still have a affinity for it because, you know, watching as a kid. Mm. Um, Sean Connery, he only took the role because he passed on Gandalf beforehand did he and he passed on a unspecified role in the matrix so he had two missed opportunities for just raking in money who would he have been in the well matrix? that's the day we don't know for sure so i don't know we like it it's only kind of reported on that he turned down a role in them maybe it might have been the the was it the room keeper thing in the, yeah. in the second one potentially he so would have been think. a terrible gandalf yeah probably yeah but so he missed out on these two, and then when League of Gentlemen came along, he literally he didn't even give a shit at all about the source thing. He was just like, "Oh, it's based on a comic." So oh, it's like, gosh, "I'll make yeah. sure I take this one." Yeah, but he was like, "It's based on something. It'll probably be a franchise. Let's get in on it." Bring me my woman beating shit. Yeah. I'm ready for it. But you can tell there's. Have you seen the film? Yeah, a long time ago. So the changes they make, like some, so it's it's widely regarded as pr- being a shit adaptation because of some of the changes it moves so far away from the original theme of like monsters being like real monsters coming together yeah it makes everyone redeemable um so Quartermain is not a, not an opium addict at all okay he just retired to africa right and to the point where like as a like a colonialist soldier he's mm. actually beloved by the locals oh exactly so it goes off. that far as well um fuck off yeah Griffin, That's stupid. Griffin, biggest one of the biggest differences as well. He's literally just like a scamp. And like mm. the worst he does is I think he grabs Miss Murray's ass. Like that's the worst he oh, does. Okay. And then the smart thing that the film does, I say smart, I think it's, it's it was kind of necessary, but they make it look like Griffin is betraying the team. And then it turns out it's Dorian Gray. 
So right, yeah, okay. So obviously everyone's like, "That's slimy Griffin," like because he's invisible. Like, ah, we can't trust him. And then later it's like, "Oh no, he's actually like saved our ass," mm. and and he's like decent by the end. Um, just for reference, would you mm. like to know what the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen's to Rotten Tomatoes score is? I'm gonna guess. I reckon it's around nineteen percent. Is that for the tomato meter or the audience score? Uh, tomato meter. Seventeen. Close, very close. And then audience score? To like 25. 44. Oh, I'm doing well. Yeah, for those of dumb, a lot of dumb kids like me who watched it. Yeah, so it has it has a has a relatively high audience score. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the critics' consensus consensus was that it was poor. But crit- critics are the kind of people that care how good a an adaptation it is, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of them are meant to be film critics who don't read the original stuff. Like Mark Como is one of the like mm. the guys I was to, and he's like, I don't read books or comics. Like, yeah, for, I watch for the, films. Yes, he. I'm a film critic. I watch films. Um, so he just he he exclusively judges it on the film that it is. Yeah, and I think that's the best way to do it if you're a film reviewer. The internet's they're gonna do all the comparisons to the original text. Yeah. Um, one good change I think they made was making Mina Murray. Uh, vampire and i think that gives her a bit more gives her some powers well see i used to think it was until my second reading that i had this that i had this opinion i i originally thought that that gave her more in terms Mm. of having some powers and being Mm. a bit more a bit more like in the trenches with the fighting and stuff yeah but now that i've read on the second viewing i'm like nah, she's she's really good and important and integral without powers yeah she's a great character so now i'm wondering you know, I think I've changed my mind on that aspect. Yeah. Um, shit change. They added Tom Sawyer because they needed an American <laughs> in there. So they added Tom Sawyer. Yeah. And he's uh, like Secret Service or something or FBI or some bollocks. So he like used <sighs> to be Tom Sawyer. He's grown up and now he's like a spy. Basically. They might as well have just thrown fucking Gatsby in there. Yeah. They're, 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 with what powers? Like He's a bootlegger. He throws the, the, throws the greatest party. Like, <laughs> like you literally can't stop partying when Gatsby hey. like. He was a cousin to the Kaiser and he once killed a man. Yeah, well. <laughs> How do you kill him? Just oh, overdose on drugs, I gave it's, him. It's a, it's, a, it's a rumor about him. A rumor about him? Yeah, any, any great Gatsby fan will know what I'm referencing. Ah, this again, you're the literature guy. That goes, <laughs> that goes way over my head. Like when I first mentioned Kevin Cormoran, you were like, who? Like, that's, but then you actually knew who Kevin I've, I know very little about the, the great Gatsby, other than the fact that he's called the great Gatsby. Gatsby was all right in the end. Really? It was what preyed on Gatsby. Oh, what foul yeah. dust trailed in the wake of his dreams. Miss me with that literature shit. <laughs> uh, one good change I thought for the film. I think the last point um, there's the they make the antagonist not so initially it looks like it's they do the same thing where it turns out it's again spoilers for the comic and yeah. for the film. It turns out it's Moriarty is yeah. the one who arranged them and is the bad guy who they have to beat in the end. In this. And I, this is a panned change. I actually did enjoy this. It might be because I was a stupid kid when I first saw it. But the so it's like, oh, this this evil guy just called M is making yeah. uh, machines and stuff, yeah, uh, like tanks, and he's trying to start the war because he's invested in arms companies and he'll make money from World War. Which two war? World War. I think it's World War One. Yeah, I think he's trying. To, this is like decades before, or a decade before, he's trying to start it. Uh, artificially right. to, to benefit from Ooh. it. So, what and tensions are higher already, so that's meant to be the point. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, the, the, because this is set in the Fin de Siècle. 
era of Victorian history. Yeah, so the film, I think um, the film is set a bit later. Early 20th film. century. Yeah. So, or, or I might be wrong. But basically, he's trying to start a war for his own profit. Mm. It then turns out that the character who's doing that is the same Moriarty who brought them together. Yeah. Because um, Moriarty, he's not making weapons to sell to the other sides. Yeah. He wants to make the League to sell to the other sides. Yeah, absolutely. So he takes pieces from each of the members so from nemo it's his literal blueprints and schematics for his technology for griffin so this is the thing that gets a bit weird he doesn't need to assemble all of them to get all this i don't think griffin they literally just need a bit of his skin but it's like you couldn't just like found him and got that like (laughs) he's there at the beginning so it's like you could have yeah you could just binned him off like before the start you didn't need it um uh, Mina, they needed her blood. Again, could have just got that. Yeah. They could have just nicked that probably without all this uh, uh They needed Hyde's potions. So he's still yeah. on the potions in the in this film. Makes sense. And what, what I did like is they get Quartermain because they need Quartermain to hunt and capture Hyde. Oh, that's what he's there for. Exactly. And, you know, to be Sean Connery's payday, obviously. Yeah. Or failed payday. Yeah. I mean, he probably got paid a bit, but, you know, definitely yeah. not as much. So, yeah, the film is worth checking out if you want to laugh. And, you know, it's a bit of fun, like a bit of fantasy fun. It's not good, but, you know, it's a bit of fun. Um, one last thing I want to mention, which I thought you'd get a kick off as well, is I found this on the Wikipedia. Hey. So, on the original Volume 1 publishing, yeah, they had to do a second press run on Issue 5. And the reason they had to do a second press run is, this is straight from Wikipedia, the greatest source of information in this day and age. Absolutely. Issue 5 contained an authentic vintage advertisement for a Marvel brand douche. Marvel Comics (laughs) is DC's chief competitive rival within the comics industry. And Moore had had a public dispute with Marvel before his public dispute with DC. Yeah. His former employer. This ad caused DC executive Paul Levetz to order the entire print run destroyed and reprinted with the offending advertisement edited. Wow. In a later title, Moore creates a miracle douche recall <laughs> headline on a newspaper, which is not only a reference to the, the previous thing, but is also a reference to the Marvel Man when comics, Marvel Comics previously retitled Marvel Man. I don't know. Either. Oh, which was written by Alan Moore. To Miracle Man. So Alan Moore wrote a title, uh, Miracle Man, they changed it to Marvel Man. So he he was joking about the recall. Yes. Oh, that's really fun. That's a fun, that's one of the most fun, like, uh, like light-hearted Alan yeah. Moore. Even though when he did it, he probably did a lot of vitriol. <laughs> a lot of hate in his heart. Which is the Alan Moore we all love. I know, he's wonderful. He's an amazing human being, and it's, it's just so fun to make fun of him. Like, oh, I just love a wizardly writer. I make fun of him because I will never, ever be as great a writer as he is. That is the he, ultimate truth. Yeah, he is a wonderful writer, isn't he? And he and he thinks he's a wizard. I mean, yeah. those two things are like... I'm so excited to talk about from hell. So this was uh, one thing I was going to mention. Like, So this, the end of every episode should be a little bit discussion about what we do next. Yeah. Now, we will obviously do more Alan Moore titles. We can, from hell can be the next Alan Moore title, for yeah. sure. 
but I do think we want to, as I said, space them out a bit. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, it can't be the Alan Moore podcast. Exactly. As much as we would love it to be. A short run of a, just an Alan Moore dedicated podcast would be great. Can I make you read one that I've read once before so I don't have to read something all the way from the start? Well, again, I was going to say, please. do you want to pick the next one? Because I essentially picked this one as the Kevin O'Neill like, yeah. um, p- paying homage to. So I don't know as much about comic book stuff as you, so I don't know what's topical. Right. I'd really like to talk about Mouse, if that's okay. Yeah, we could do Mouse next. I think we've done enough that I think... I mean, we've hit some heavy subjects already, so I think Mouse we can look at with that analytical eye and just yeah. the positive effect that's had, its recent bannings in America and yeah. all that stuff. So we've got a lot to talk about, to be fair. Yeah, we can talk about Mouse. I don't think there's going to be as much of like a... And then this part happens and this part, because it's like... It's the fucking Holocaust. Yes. <laughs> I think most of those parts are going to be... Uh, the relationship we're getting ahead of ourselves but it's gonna be the relationship between characters and you know in the modern day and you know it's gonna be quite a somber episode yes and i think it requires a bit of respect which it's gonna be a a challenge to we always try and be be a bit funny in these so this one's gonna be one that we're gonna have to you know be respectful for and just kind of look at it as the piece of literature that comics can aspire to be because mouse is one of the biggest titles in that regard it's a conversation about generational trauma isn't it exactly so get ready listeners for generational trauma next episode (laughs) i can't help myself um it's gonna be a good one it's outro time time for jamie's outro yes and once we have something so another point i was gonna i was gonna mention you is do we still start twitter for this because that is the ultimate way to like get People, for people to get in oh, contact fuck Twitter. but it's also like buying a ticket for the titanic after <laughs> it's already started sinking like <laughs> it is, isn't we it? want to get on board but oh mate yeah fucking hell i mean it's eight dollars <laughs> yeah well that's if we get verified and yeah, like but you might as well at this point yeah, so yeah we want that blue tick don't you yeah, eight, eight dollars a month what's is that it like? eight dollars a month what's that in the old money that's like seven Pound something probably. It's more, something. Well, at some at some point soon, it's going to be more than my mortgage once the fucking currency crashes. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, we'll start one. We'll look at verification down the line. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I mean, Twitter might end by then. For yeah, you never know. It yeah. might be gone. So, but we'll get a Twitter. We'll get an Instagram. Yeah. Uh, definitely, the biggest thing I think we're going to focus on is getting shorter clips on TikTok. Yeah, I'm uh, up for that. Get the word out and all that thing. Something for people to share um and the actual releases of the episodes uh we're doing some fine tweaking with regards to the editing process and yeah. sharing the kind of content editing but we've i've got the technical aspects down and then once we're kind of rolling we're gonna have we're gonna have several episodes ahead naturally and then we're gonna be able to record like in bulk if we need to if we need to miss a week so we're hoping to stick to a weekly release no are, we matter on, what. are we on four or five episodes this five is now. the fourth episode that we've just done is it yes so we did i'll do an outro and we'll cut the recording (laughs) okay so then we can just have this conversation at some point we just start talking about a day and it's like oh we forgot to stop recording um so that was what what is this called (laughs) the comic or the podcast the podcast (laughs) comic literate the Comic Literate Podcast. Thank sure. you. Thank you for listening to the Comic Literate Podcast. If you'd like to hear more from Ryan, he will be shortly appearing on YouTube as Comic Stands. If you'd like to hear more from Jamie, he is on YouTube as Myths for Sad Grown Ups. Thanks very much and good night. Bye. <laughs>